forum for frank talk about what people do for a living. Works do. Hello and welcome to Works Do. It's September 14th, 2014, and this is episode number 87. I'm Kate Gase Walton. I'm the editor of Works Do, an online collection of essays and interviews in which people ponder their work lives. In this episode, I speak with Joe Loya. One of the first questions I had for Joe is how he defines himself, how he introduces himself. So let's get right to the interview. with Joe Loya. And Joe, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. Of course, you're welcome. So Joe, you were introduced to me over Facebook as a former bank robber. And my first question for you is, is that how you introduce yourself? It depends. Um, if I'm um, if I'm in a re-entry group and I'm talking to a bunch of ex-cons who are sitting there and they see me standing up there and they know they have a speaker and they don't know who I am and they're kind of just talking. They look at me now and I'm middle-aged and a little heavier around the middle and graying and I'm wearing kind of, I don't know, traditional clothing or something. They're not they're not really keen on, on who I am. So as soon as I start off and say, hi, my name is Joe Loy. It's a privilege to speak to you guys. Uh, I'm a former bank robber, robbed 30 banks. And boom, I'm in it. I got their attention immediately. All the eyes are on me. And because of two things have occurred, one, in the hierarchy of prison, Bank robbery is a is a is a is a real crime that people look up to. Um, it, it requires a certain amount of violence. It requires a certain amount of you know you get money, good money for it. it's not like a liquor store. But the mm-hmm. other thing is now they have to reconcile the person in front of them that that robbed thirty banks um, with the visual of me. Mm. And now I have their I totally have their attention. That works out here too. If I'm in a conversation, somebody finds out I'm a bank robber. Oftentimes they won't won't have noticed me, and then as soon as in a party they find out that I that somebody tells them that, I know when that moment has occurred. Right, <laughs> so right. I'm willing to talk. I'm willing to talk about it because I wrote a memoir about it, and I'm on TV talking about crime. And it is a, a a credential of mine in terms of talking about crime yeah. or the prison system, judicial system. But I usually don't meet people once. In fact, all the parents at my child, my child, my daughter's school. You know, it, it doesn't come up till later. And sometimes some of them have seen me on TV, and um, and uh, there's a show called "I Almost Got Away with It," and they'll see an episode of it. Or they'll see, they'll find out, they'll read an essay I wrote or something, mm. and they'll be surprised. They're totally surprised because I don't talk about. It. Not right. that the first thing I talk about. So, so how but do you? Fact, sometimes it's been weird. Not to, I've tried a few times, excuse me, to to not talk about to avoid right. talking about it. like when a bank teller asks me what my book is about <laughs> when it comes up and I'm a writer and I feel like oh I don't want to tell this woman they just about banks uh, yeah. she may have been robbed before and it might trigger something I don't even want to go there so that kind of happens sometimes yeah so for example when you're at your daughter's school how do you introduce yourself um, you know, just I'm a dad. I'm a dad, and I want to know what other parents are like. And so, yeah. I just, you know, I, I, I don't say hi. I'm Joe Lynn, the writer. Hey, yeah. I'm Matilda's dad, and you know, and yeah. the, we talk. And a lot of times, I'm really, I'm there because I'm a dad. I'm actually, I'm on an intelligence gathering mission. So I'm always trying to find out who they are. Right. Right. <laughs> I want to who they are. I want to know what they're about. I want to know what might they be teaching their kids. What <laughs> lessons might they be learning in their home. Is this person, does it, can I pick up a read off a lot of aggression? Can I pick up a read off of 
um, their discipline styles? Are they complaining a lot about their kid? Are they like, what, what am I going to read off of them? So I want to, I'm, I'm good at sort of like, you know, questioning people and getting them to open up and share stories and yeah, so I'm it's a diff- different mode. Yeah. 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 So let's go way back. You know, I did have a few questions about when you were robbing banks. Um, one of my questions was was really just to get a sense from you of how it felt both the first time and when you were in something of a steady state. Because as you said, you robbed, you know, a lot of banks. It was not a one-time thing for you. Um, can you, can you kind of relive that for a moment and describe what that was like? Yeah, well, I'll just tell you the first time I robbed the bank, it took me an entire day to rob the bank. I was, um, I was 20, uh, I was 24 and, um, I was 23 or 24. It was the summer that I turned 24. So I don't know if I had turned yet, but I, um, I was very scared. Decided I was going to rob a bank. I'd never robbed anything like that before. Never, never pulled a gun anywhere or nothing that kind of thing. I was a strong arm robber. I would take people's things. I would steal cars off of a lot. Uh, I had done, you know, strong arm robberies, but also, you know, a bunch of problems, checks and fraud. I was all over the place. I was just a petty criminal. And I, I bumped up my game of bank robbery. So I'd never done it. And I decided to do it one morning. I went in San Diego. And uh, San Diego, I was in, it was a fugitive in Mexico. So I came up and um, started walking into banks at 9 a.m. And I uh, would walk out in various degrees of distress, you know, it's stand in line and panic. I would go to write the note at the counter and panic. I'd walk in, I'd see, I didn't like something, I'd walk out all day. And then I went to a different part of San Diego all day long, walking the strip, trying to see what would happen. And nothing happen and I, I I parked in every fast food restaurant in, that you can imagine you know mm. for a little while having coffee at a Burger King and McDonald's and Wendy's just was not doing it by 4.45pm it was the last chance you know because banks close at 5 in those days and so mm. I just slid a note to this woman and scared to death and she looked down and she wouldn't look up and she I gave her an opportunity to take her eyes off me and so I tried to pull the, the, the note back and she just pulled it back to her and she, like she was still not done reading it. It wasn't very long. It said, you know, we have a ball, I have a gun, give me the money now. And uh, and so we had to tug the war with the note and I finally had to speak and say, hey, you know, I'm not messing around, give me the money. And so the whole idea of the note was defeated. I realized I got to talk because if I give them a note, they're going to look down. That was the last note I ever sent and I ever used. All that to say, it took me all day. I was right. scared. I ran out, 4500 bucks, something like that. Ran to a cab, ran to the border, and uh, went in the next, uh, tried to go into Mexico the next day. And I was arrested going to Mexico the next day, not for the bank robberies, but I was arrested for um, all the, the warrants I had out, the reason I had left the country to begin with. So I get arrested in a stolen car going into Mexico because my, my car had been parked in... in um, uh, my car had been parked in San Ysidro, right there by the border. So all that, I get to prison for two years knowing, okay, when I get out, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to rob banks. And I got out, 14-month bank robbery spree. Hmm. Um, I eventually worked up to robbing four banks in one day. Once I robbed a bank, I was so unhappy with the little amount of money I got that even though the police were on the way, I walked into the bank next door and I robbed it too. 
there's a fearlessness and a, and a sort of um, taunting death and taunting hazard. I was just swimming in that mode in those days. Um, so one thing I'm curious about, just to, just to interrupt you for a sec, because that's so interesting to me that after that first bank, you went to prison for two years, and it, it wasn't for that robbery. But clearly that experience of being in prison, right, in no way deterred you from mm-hmm. returning to crime and, and specifically returning to, to robbing banks, right? If anything... Yeah, no, it didn't deter me at all. Yeah. It didn't deter me at all because I was a criminal, you know, and there's yeah. nothing to arrest that in me. There was nothing I had done to confront criminality or the the things that motivated me to want to desire to um, to be uh, live outside of society. There was nothing, nothing nobody gave me, nothing the system um, provided me. No insights in the world could could offer of what was going on inside of me, what was compelling me to do this. Nothing. I mean, you know, I'd been raised with with religion, so the only thing I got was I was a sinner. And that wasn't very helpful. Right. Um, that was just too abstract. But in terms of what was really driving, what was really moving me, what was that engine, what was underwriting all this, nothing. I had no clue. I was completely confused. I was desperate. I was rageful. And so this is what this is what ended up happening. It took, you know, going to prison for seven years and... And be- before for that, almost two before it happened, yeah. Yeah, did, while you were really sort of in the thick of it, like like during that time where, as you said, you robbed four banks in one day, were you expecting mm-hmm. to get caught or were you kind of in this zone where you were almost not thinking about your future? I mean, the one thing that was really stri- <clears throat> striking to me reading what you wrote is, on the one hand, it takes a lot of thought to rob a bank. You know, you have to be strategic. Mm-hmm. You have to p- have a plan. You, ha- you have to be mm-hmm. Smart. Um, on the other hand, um, it almost seemed like to do it in the way that you did it, you had to, uh, you know, not be thinking about your future and not be weighing risk. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear you talk about that, that mindset. Well, you know what? It's uh, the best I can do to describe it because it doesn't make sense. To, it doesn't make sense to the, the the functional person who thinks, you know, I don't understand. How could you be moving through the day accomplishing something? And not be aware of it, um, and not be aware of consequence. Like, how can you divorce yourself from the reality of behavior that's actually occurring in front of you, and, and the and the consequences of it, and whatever? And I can only liken it to one thing: it's uh, have you ever been driving, and you realize when you got to your car, uh, you were so preoccupied with something that you got to your car and you got to the bank or you got to the hospital or you got to the, the grocery store, and you realize, man, I don't ever remember. Turning mm. my blinker on, one, um, stopping at a light, but your mind goes on autopilot, and you you stop at stop signs. You didn't get in any accidents. You were clearly following the rules. You were clearly doing what needed to be done, but you were on automatic. Mm-hmm. But your mind was preoccupied with something. You were solving some problem. You were stressed out about something. The brain is a very very interesting thing. It allows us to move in the world and operate in the world and function in a way that. Also, where we can be kind of divorced from it. It's almost probably the way animals move in the world without consciousness. They're mm-hmm. making decisions. They have to eat. They have to hunt. They have to do things that require pattern and 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 um, and uh, pattern and I don't want to say motor, but it, ha- it has like you know sort of like strategy, a tactic, or something that, that 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 makes sense, and yet they're not aware of it. That's what happens when we're driving like that, mm. and it's like we, we're we're checked out. That's what it is to be a criminal, to, yeah. to be 
to, to, to be in the moment of impulse, to be in the moment where you're able to check out, compartmentalize, whatever you want to call it. Most criminals have been traumatized, so they've already, the brain has this great function to protect you from trauma by giving you these little escape routes. You see it all the time. Right. Um, we, if you've ever worked with abused children, you know anything about abuse and trauma, it's like psychology 101. You get to check out. Mm. I had been habituated to violence to such a degree and had been so vulnerable as a little kid, broken bones and the torture of my fa- father. It eventually led me at age 16 to, you know, to stab my dad in the neck because he had broken bones and we were threatened. Our lives were threatened, me and my little brother, and I stuck. I stood up for us. The, the morbidity in our home allowed me early to develop this practice of checking out, mm. almost going concussion state, fugue state kind of thing. Right. That's what it is to be a criminal. You have one, and also on a part of being a criminal is you are impulsive, but more importantly, you have no feel for posterity. Mm. This is the difference between the average citizen who's saving money in the bank, who's thinking about the future, making choices for for college when they graduate, all those things that make people functional, the criminal doesn't have that. He has mm. no feel for posterity, mostly because of trauma and mostly because of the morbidity of the lifestyle that they've been raised in in the neighborhood or whatever, where a lot of people are dying since they were kids, being shot and killed and, and that kind of thing. So, right. yeah, it's a right. whole different thing. But it, it, here's the thing. It's the same brain. Yeah. The same brain that you have and I had then, it's the same brain that allows you to check out to accomplish something else or to not really be aware of what you're doing while you're doing it. Does that make sense? It it actually makes perfect sense. And some of what you have referenced there, you've written so beautifully about, and I'm going to include some links to to some of your writing. But one thing I wanted to, to then go on to talk about is when you then went to prison for, it was seven years, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I, uh, I read in, in one thing that you wrote that you actually connected, I'm not sure if it was during that time or after that time, with Piper Kerman, who is, uh, as a lot of people know, the author of Orange is the New Black. And you advised her to look out for one you know funny thing that happened every day and, and to write it down. And that really leapt out at me because, um, you know, one thing that I, I do, and I'm not in prison, and I actually have a life that I'm very grateful for and is, you know, relatively peaceful is, is I do that as a practice because I think the world, um, can sometimes be very overwhelming, very sad. Uh, and it's just a habit I kind of fell into a few years ago. What was it, um, in the circumstances? What is your habit of writing down one funny thing a day? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's that simple. (laughs) And so I read that and I was like, Hey, I do that. Um, and uh, so, what, so what what brought you to, to give her that piece of advice? Where did it come from for you? Okay, well, well, just clarify what happened was, um, and uh, when she went to prison, we I knew her husband already, um, and Larry, and um, there was a bunch of writers here in the Bay Area who were very close to Larry. And when she went to prison, somebody sent a friend of mine, sent out an email saying, hey, Piper's there. I never met her. I just knew her husband and said, she's went to jail. She needs some books. So I sent her my hardcover and I said, Hey, listen, you know, nobody will know what you're going through like I do. Um, so if you need somebody to talk about it, I can break it down to you there. And I can also tell you that you need to start writing this stuff down. And every day write something funny. This is the funniest thing you've, you've seen or heard. And the, the most tragic thing you've seen and heard mm-hmm. both those things, because I felt like, and I've always felt like this, that 
Um, and I, and I, if you're reading, if you're talking about an essay I wrote about um, uh, Orange is the New Black, basically my whole premise about crime is uh, I always reference for Lannery O'Connor's idea that the maximum amount of seriousness admits the maximum amount of comedy. And one thing behind bars was how funny it was. And people mm. don't realize how much we laugh. And, um, and um, so when I got out of prison, I started writing. And my friends who were inmates that I left behind were like, man, Joe, tell them about how funny you were. Write about our humor. Mm. Like, that was a big thing. They were like, they wanted, we, we la- I laughed so much behind bars. Mm. So, and I have a boisterous, I have a really loud, obnoxious laugh. <laughs> my friends could track me where I was in the unit based on where I was laughing from at a card game at the back of the third tier. You know, they could find me. But um, so um, that's the whole thing with me is if you're going to if you're going to be a good chronicler of of um, the, the CD world, the people who do it most earnestly are unbelievable to me. Mm. Uh, the ones who want to make it okay, it's a dark world. This should make it all dark. The ones who have a good sense of humor around them, I'm that's believable to me. Mm. And I wanted her to get in the habit of recognizing that human that um our human contact even there even though there's a lot of human squalor there we can concentrate on the squalor of it there's also a lot of beauty in the way we survive and there's also a lot of beauty in the way uh we connect with our humor and it's a dark humor to be sure but still it's humor right um i wrote about that in my memoir there's a lot of funny things in there tragic and funny but so that was my thing to her was just to also if it's funny it's easier to write about something that's funny as opposed to every day trying to fall into some darkness at the end of the day. Yeah. And I thought it would lighten it would lighten her up to be on the lookout for yeah. those those moments and also to not take herself too seriously <clears throat> because right. I'm on a big campaign at this stage of my life. Anytime I talk to anyone who's in prison or out of prison, you want to change your life, you better stop taking yourself too seriously. Part of the problem we had is that we took ourselves too seriously. Yeah. And it got us in trouble. Yeah. <clears throat> and I see people out here ever since I've come out of prison. Most of the problems I look and see in people's lives when they come to me. It's not about crime or not crime. I would I'm a criminal or criminal. It's usually they don't they don't they don't have they don't see enough joy or humor in the world. They're just mm. too everything's this, everything's bad, everything's horrible, you know, that kind of mm. But that's my that's my like instinct anyway. So she right. and I became friends through this correspondence. When she got out, I encouraged her to write the you know the book and and um, you know. And so we're going to actually be in conversation here at the local library in a couple couple weeks, and we get together periodically and have these conversations in front of people like at Stanford a couple months back and stuff. Right. Kind of fun. I yeah. love hanging out with her. One one final yeah. question. I know we have to read your memoir to get sort of the full texture and the full story, but when, when you were in that prison for seven years and then you came out, were you fundamentally changed in any way? Did you approach life in a way that was very different? Yes, yes, yes. I would say one thing. The big, the biggest thing is, um, <laughs> I can't. I don't want to be. I don't want to confuse people. Mm. There was a couple of things in my life where I was altered dramatically because I made a few little innovations. The biggest thing, obviously, is um, I innovated in my life and figured out what was um, animating my rage. And finding that out, where I was able to disable the mechanisms that. Um, drove me to behave and act out of anger. That was a huge thing because most of the cinematic parts of my life were were these great dramatic um, crimes and, and sprees and and um, violences, you know. And mm. so on the outside, anyone looking at me when I got out, 
um, could see for the last 18 years that I've been out there, and I'm not that guy. I don't, I don't operate like that anymore. The people who are closest to me could see that even the, 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 <clears throat> the um, aggressive and, uh, and sort of mean-spirited part of me was gone, too. And actually, you know, it was just, I was becoming somebody that was peaceful. And that was what I really wanted. I wanted to figure out not just how do I stop committing crimes, but how can I become peaceful? Because all my life had just been this loud, dialed-up, you know, erratic noise in my head and, and in my behavior. And I was just creating nothing but tension and drama and conflict in my life. So mm-hmm. that changed. But here's the thing. This is where I don't want to confuse people. That actually was only about 5% of my life. Hmm. Uh, 10% maybe. That it, it, was, it looked like it was the whole life because my life was so became so centered around the crimes and the prison and all that stuff. But the truth is... To this day, 90% of the things that I struggle with are things that I have struggled with since I was nine. I'm still trying to get a half of those things, you know. Some of them aren't as wild as they were. Mm. But in terms of things, I remember I'm still struggling with things I've been struggling with since I was a kid. I'm going to go to my grave struggling with certain things. So when I change my life, I don't feel like I changed my life. Mm. I feel like I worked on the things that were the most out of, out of balance. And I'm still striving for congruency like I wanted it when I was 13 and 12 and 26 Mm. and 35 and 44. I'm still struggling with all that stuff. I don't have any grasp on that in some ways more than I did when I was nine. In some ways, I'm far along in in some areas. But basically, the one major innovation was what gets me angry? What What was driving? What was that invisible hand that was treating my life like I was a puppet, sock puppet? You know, like what was, and I found it and I got rid of it. And I kind of, I kind of like, you know, surgically removed that from me or at least learned how to manage it, you know? So Mm. that was a dramatic thing. That was a big change, big, huge innovation. Yeah. But I'm still trying to figure out how to move along and find congruency in my life in ways that I don't know if I'm ever going to find this to the dead. I'm further well, along. As, and I'm as are we all, right? Ever. Yeah, as are we are. I'm not hard on myself. It's yeah. like that's just, that's what it means to be, you know, part of the, you know, have this human material wrapped in, and that's it. Right. That's, that's, it. that's, that's everyone's about. work in a way. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate your taking the time and, and sharing your story. Obviously, you've written a lot as well, and that's uh, probably even a better way to, to get your story. But it was it was great of you to, to give us a glimpse into it this way as well. Thank you. No, of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That wraps up the interview for today. Thanks very much to my guest, Joe Loya. Thanks also to everyone who's written an essay to work stew. Thanks to Chris Walton of Visual Studio Productions for editing this interview. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening today. The next episode will be released in two weeks, and I hope you'll check it out. In the meantime, please let me know what you thought of the interview by sending an email to kate at workstew.com or by posting a comment on the Workstew website. Thanks again, and bye for now.